Welcome to Book, the Warmed and Bound Sessions. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Warmed and Bound is an anthology published by Velvet Press, consisting of just under 40 short stories, all by authors who are members of or involved in The Velvet, which is an online community of authors and fans of the trio Will Christopher Bear, Craig Clevenger, and Stephen Graham Jones. Warmed and Bound was released on July 22nd. Anthony David Jakes has bagged groceries, sold women's clothing, booked international travel, roasted coffee, repossessed cars, survived cancer and Christianity, gotten married, and now he works as a gemologist while slaving over prose. Writing is what he does to make sense of everything else. His short fiction has been published at Colored Chalk, Dogmatica, Troubadour 21, Pulp Metal Magazine, and the Outsider Writers Collective. And his short story, The Liberation of Edward Keller, appears in Warmed and Bound. Um, Anthony was nice enough to take some time out of his day to talk to Booked. Anthony, thanks for taking some time and coming on with us. Really glad we can have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's really cool. It's an honor. You want to start off by telling us a little bit about your story, The Liberation of Edward Keller? Sure, yeah. So um, about a year ago, well, I should start at the beginning. Uh, last year, my New Year's resolution was just to write 52 short stories in a year, to post one a week. And this one is a product of that. There was a time, I think it was about March, where I was writing music. I was writing uh, songs kind of inspired by music, where I maybe I'd gotten an idea from a song or something. And uh, that was kind of the spark of the first couple of images where this story got started. Um, and I really, really liked the imagery, but then I had no idea what to do with it. And eventually, I just had kind of this cool idea of the concept, too and brought the concept and the images together and the whole idea behind the story which I don't even want to describe I don't, I'm not going to say anything about the story itself because it's so short then that would preclude the, the need to read it um, it's about a thousand words the whole premise is, is just a false dichotomy it's like this the tension between this sort of an idealistic uh, way of living or, this, or a false ideal kind of a charade or a facade and uh, sort of the lesser of two evils becomes like the physical bondage. Just choosing, well, at least I know what my chains look like, you know, uh, versus just being a, kind of a, a slave, but a slave to more of, a, of an idea of some kind of sham of perfection, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so that's that's where the that's the the metaphor of the story. It's almost it's almost a metaphor uh, for like religion, let's say. You know, it's like we have this perfect thing on one side. Oh yeah, let's go, let's go this direction, it's perfect, it's, you know, and you'll be happy, you'll live forever, and all these things, but, oh, if you don't, well, I'm going to torture you forever down here. Well, it means there is no free will in that decision. You know, there, there is no choice in that decision, it's, there's an invisible gun to your head. You can't, you can't decide. Um, and so, my main character, what he's doing is he's basically saying, you know, this is a sham, and he's just kind of realizing it. And the point of the story isn't that you have to choose one or the other. Um, it, the background of it is, well, there's a lot more options on the table. But hopefully you get the sense that what he's doing, kind of making this sort of final decision, he thinks he's between a rock and a hard place, and so he chooses what he thinks is slightly more moral, just to at least admit that you know, I'm going to go in with my eyes open this time and at least be in some kind of the, the, essentially the same situation, bondage, but you know, I'll have decided to be in bondage rather than to be tricked into some fake ideal. Um, 
I think the <laughs> first thing I want to say is that was a really wonderful way of, of saying a lot about your story without really revealing anything. And when Livius and I were talking uh, before we got on with you, I was like, oh, yeah, I'd really like to talk about this. And then I started talking about it, and I'm like, that ruins it. Oh, I'd really like to talk about this. And, uh, oh, no, I can't say that. So, <laughs> like you said, it's a really short story, so you can't go into it. Yeah, I was worried, actually. I was worried. I was going to, like, <laughs> so what happens next? And then it's like, oh, shit, that's, that's the end. What do you do now? Yeah, exactly. And um and then I was like, well, I can just talk about how he kind of does this and it's and it's more general and I was like, no, that really reveals things too. So, first of all, <laughs> props for doing that. It was a really well um structured way of saying what what your story is about without revealing anything. Um but one of the things I noticed about it that I thought was really nice is how you focused on or it, I one part of the story I liked was the focus on like you focus on some colors and some objects. And those mm-hmm. objects had a lot of, like, they were really kind of, like, grounded in the story throughout. Yeah. And yeah. that really helped me to, it, it's weird to have such a short story that something like just an object that you refer to more than once really kind of ties you into something when it's so short. It's like a it's like, it's an easy buy-in, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like cheating in a way. And again, I was so short because I was doing one a week, and so my I would always give myself that sort of goal slash minimum, or however I wanted to look at it. I was aiming for about a thousand words, and you can't do a ton with a thousand words unless you pack a whole lot of meaning into a couple of things, but you bring those couple of things up often enough, and each time you bring it up, it has to mean something else, or it has to add depth, or there's no reason to say it again. Mm-hmm. And if you can't bring it up two or three times... And at depth, don't bring it up at all. Mm-hmm. To me, I mean, because a thousand words. I mean, you shouldn't be wasting words no matter what you're writing. But it's a lot more apparent when it's uh, so brief, so to the point. So yeah, I, I tried to pack a lot of metaphors, and I'm not even gonna pretend to be aware of all the metaphors now. I'm sure I was thinking of zillions of things at the time that. The main ones now still stick in my mind, but who knows? I probably had a lot of funny ideas that may or may not even be represented anymore. <laughs> um, one of the things, and kind of in keeping with talking about how short your story is, is I'm a huge um, proponent of that very, very short fiction like that can be so much more impactful than longer prose. And again, not to give anything away about your story, but I felt it was very impactful, and I think that the the size of it kind of helps it do that because you realize you've just read, you know, three and a half pages, and you've gotten, you know, you've had this whole little story built for you that's much, much bigger than the thousand words you read. And I think you did a very good job of that. I mean, Doc O'Donnell's story is very short, same thing, very impactful. Um, mm-hmm. Pela Villa's story, again, not very long. I think that one clocks in about five or six pages. And I think right. that there's an impact that can be made with short fiction that's much, much harder to do. You can have a good story at 20 pages. It's just rarely that impactful. Mm. The so. other thing you got to realize, too, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a genius all the time. But I, out of 52 stories last year, I can think of six that I think are worth revising and submitting. <laughs> and I mean, worth revising and submitting. This one I revised several times. The rest of them, it's, it's a lot of crap. But it was a good goal. That's the whole the whole uh, thing. Who was it? Ray Bradbury. Someone said you can't write fifty two bad stories in a row, and he's right. You can get close, but you really can't do that if you're if you're paying attention. 
And that was the whole point. And so just to put it in perspective, most of it I just can't stand. I leave it live on, on, on my blog because it was a blog project to kind of keep myself humble and to say, yeah, you, you write crap sometimes, a lot. But um, maybe I'll delete it eventually if I ever get some some real fans going or something. Maybe I'll finally get too embarrassed to leave it up. But for now, it's kind of good to have it up there just to remind me that, yeah, it does take this many stories in a row to, to get those few gems that you really like. And then those are the ones that you eventually start sending out. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's a like a really interesting project and even if you didn't quite get the results you wanted, did it did it get you in the habit of writing more frequently or did you learn oh, anything from just doing Okay. Yeah, that was the result I wanted. I didn't want fifty two awesome short stories. I knew that was completely beyond my grasp. Um the result was habit. Habit, habit, habit. Do it every day, edit and revise and even after it's posted, you know that's not the end, because now it's on your blog, so if you're going to publish something, it's got to be different anyways, it's got to be revised and different enough, or it's already available to the world. So the whole point was just every day, every day, every day, that was the goal. Getting the 52 stories was, just, was more like a placeholder, you know, and doing it on a blog was just to make to keep me honest, because if I say, oh, I'll do it every week, but then no one can tell if I have or not, then there's nothing keeping me accountable. How about you tell us a little bit about your history with the Velvet? The Velvet's interesting. I, I, I'm like most guys. I got there from uh, the cult, from the Chuck, and I don't know how to say his last name, Polonik, Polonik, I don't know. Um, I've never heard anybody say it out loud, honestly. Um, but that guy, the Fight Club author, uh, I, last semester of college, never read someone hand me a copy of Fight Club's, or I watched it, and then someone said, this is a book, and I read it and I was floored. I was absolutely floored. I was like, this is crazy. Um, so I jumped right onto the website. Didn't like the cult at first. It was too big. Um, and around that time, people were starting to talk about this velvet thing and Craig Clevenger. I read The Contortionist's Handbook, and that was fantastic. Uh, so I jumped over there. I logged in. I registered. But there was no one over there. And it was too slow. So I said, well, okay. I'll go back to the cult, and I kind of just got chewed up and spit out by the general discussion forums, and I wasted a lot of time there and just, you know, a lot of time every day. And eventually then, um, fast forward a few years where I actually decided to, to take some writing on myself, and I I did a few of the workshops at the cult, but I realized that um, the Velvet was kind of a a place where you're not going to get a lot of BS, you're not going to get any trolls or anyone crapping on you uh, just just to get kicks, you know. And most of those guys are pretty serious about the craft. And now my involvement is still pretty minimal. Um, and I, I like it like that because maybe a year ago I, I started frequenting uh, the, the Velvet and I don't want ever to get to the point where I was at the cult where I was on there every day, posting a lot and eating up several hours where I should actually be writing and I should only be coming here, you know, to either check in once in a while, see if anybody has some questions that I might know something about. Things like, uh, like if you've had a past job doing this or doing that or research, that kind of thing, sometimes I can help a little bit of the writing stuff I'll give advice on, but I, I don't think I'm in that position just yet. And then... I'll ask questions and I'll be asking people about submissions or what to expect here or how to 
maybe help uh, revising something, and then I'll be done. And I don't want to go on maybe once or twice a week so that I don't just kill three weeks <laughs> talking about movies. Because, you know, you can get into that even on the velvet now. Um, and then I've done nothing and I've wasted all this time. So it's been about a year now that I've been active, but I'm, I'm still kind of a ghost over there. Like, I don't think they really know quite what to make of me. And, um, I'm not very widely published. Eight or nine stories now in the last couple of years. Um, but out of that, two rejections. It's not bad. You know, oh, I, that is, I don't, that I don't is a anything. really good rate. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't submit anything. I mean, it's just like I'm super picky and I'm super afraid of rejection too so kind of maybe I shouldn't be but I, I, I love I love the velvet for the focus you can get as long as you don't um, kill you know an, an entire afternoon just talking about your favorite zombie movies or something which <laughs> can happen so we've, we've had we've had episodes go that route <laughs> we've talked about zombie movies for, for quite a while mm-hmm. All right. As an interesting aside, just because his name has come up on the on the show here frequently in connection to the Velvet, um, according to the FAQ on his site, the pronunciation is Paula Nick, Paula um, Nick. like Paula, like Paula and Nick. And then there's a kind of interesting aside. He said that his grandparents decided to pronounce it um, as a combination of their two first names, Paula and Nick. And then Chuck actually goes on to say, so many Paula Nicks drop letters from the name. We kept all the letters, but we probably say it the worst. The old world pronunciation is Paula Nyuk. Paula so there, Yes, but he okay. goes by Paula Nick. That's from the FAQ on, um, on Chuck Paula Nick's site. So. Well, now I can actually recommend his books without having to be like, yeah, this guy. I don't know how to say his name. Chuck P. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's fantastic. I want um, to put in the. I'm gonna splice in the uh, the more you know music. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess speaking of names, uh, this might be a good time to bring this up. We've started asking some of the authors that come on. You have three names: Anthony, David, Jakes. And um, does that make you a better writer than authors with only two names? <laughs> I wouldn't assume so right off the bat. I think that's probably not for me to decide. My wife would say yes, but I don't know. I mean. My parents don't read my stuff, so what, what does that mean? You know, they just, who knows? Um, I actually don't, I, I, this is weird, I, so I have to be honest, I don't even have three names. So, I, I believe in my entire life I actually do. Anthony David Jakes, my father's middle name is David. He goes by David because he was named, his first name is Joe, and he was named after someone who my grandma or grandpa or great-grandfather didn't like. And so he goes by David now, and so, he gave me this middle name, um, except when I moved to California, you have to provide your uh, birth certificate and your, dri- uh, your uh, social security card to get a new ID or driver's license. Mm-hmm. I'm standing there at the DMV, I've been there for four hours, and I have to deal with this woman who was some kind of Alabama transplant or something with a thick southern accent and three missing teeth. And this is the person I have to find out from, that if you look at my documentation, all I have is a middle initial D. So legally, I have a, I have a middle initial. That's it. So I'm Anthony D. Jakes. And when talk about disillusionment, I had to call my parents, and you know, it's just, <laughs> it was just like earth shattering. And of all the people to hear it from at the DMV, really, it was, it was. But I'd already been sort of using that name 
for a couple of years, kind of making music and, and writing and kind of screwing around trying to decide what I wanted to focus on. And, uh, so that's technically my pen name. I mean, if I'm honest, I suppose the D could stand for anything. I don't know. <laughs> Danger. Ooh. Hey. There it, <laughs> there it is. But uh, so, yeah, the three name thing, I just, I thought it sounded, you know, back when I actually made the decision before I had this revelation, I just thought it, it set me apart a little bit. And maybe I even consider dropping my last name because nobody says that right ever. Um, and then I said no, because Anthony David, there's actually some musician, I think Louisiana, who goes by Anthony David, he's an African-American guy, uh, does some kind of bluesy jazz music, good musician, but I didn't want to get mixed up with him if people are Google searching me. And so I just thought, yeah, just put all three. And that's pretty unique. That's a much better story than we expected. Usually it's just like, yeah, there's already an Anthony Jakes writing, so that's why I have a third name in there. So. <laughs> I don't know. I only know of one Jakes that writes, uh, Brian Jakes. He writes those mouse books. It was not mouse. Um, uh, Redwall, I think it is, and they're little hamsters or mice or something. <laughs> it's like a fiction. I don't know what it is. It's, it's strange. But they're children's books. All right, switching gears a little bit. Sure. So back to Warmed and Bound, how does it feel for you to be published alongside uh, some of the big names from the Velvet, like uh, Stephen Graham Jones and Craig Clevenger? It's honestly, it's it's humbling. I mean, the Polonic got my was like my foot in the door uh, with dark fiction. I have to be honest and say that I was always a little irritated with some of his chorus techniques, and I read some of his other books. I love I love the, the books, I love the plots, but I was always like, oh, you, you know. The weather today is whatever, the chance of whatever, oh, it's funny. Um, I, I like it, though, but it's, when I read Clevenger, oh, my God, I read The Commercialist Handbook, and it just, something about just the, the fact that it's so not presumptuous. It doesn't, it's writing, it kind of doesn't sound like writing somehow at the same time, and it's so good, and so, it just coaxes you along and feeds you these great, sensate details. And so I was just nothing but disappointed when I realized that he published so little and now it comes full circle and I've gotten into a community that was kind of centered around being a fan of his and suddenly I'm going to be in the same pages on the same, you know, credits in the same cover of something that he's done and he, he, it's so strange because he puts out so little and Stephen Graham Jones mad respect for the guy. He, he writes a lot, and he, he's, he's fantastic. Uh, but it's just the rarity of, of Clevenger publications that just kind of you salivate every time you hear about something, you just eat it up. <laughs> and so to, to be in those pages, it's just tragic that more people haven't heard of him because I, I, I'm so happy about it, and there's so few people that I can tell that can actually share that sort of joy because they just don't even know who the guy is. They don't have any context for it at all. Um, it just it blows me away. I had a very similar experience of how I got into some of the Velvet authors, and it was from seeing Fight Club, and then it's funny because listening to Richard Thomas's interview when it aired, um, I heard it again, you know, and not being involved in it, just listening, and I thought how similar you know, my story was to his is that I saw the movie, decided not to read that book, but read all the other books, and then heard about Clevenger mm. and Bear and went that same route that everybody else seems to to get involved <laughs> in, in, in the Velvet. 
Um, and I've been saying from day one, you know, telling people that, you know, Kiss Me Judas is, is one of my favorite books and that the only reason those books hit, that the contortionist handbook, the reasons that they're not successful has to be in the promotion of the book. There's no other reason if it got, if it would have gotten in front of enough people on the front table at borders or Barnes and Noble or whatever, that both of them, um, would be far more successful, mm-hmm. at least in line with Polinick. Yeah. But I, I think some of that goes back to publishing and that the publishers didn't, uh, I don't know, weren't big enough to make they, it happen or maybe they didn't even know, yeah. you know, maybe they didn't know what they had in front of them. I mean, I'll give away copies of the Contortionist Handbook or um, Fight Club, just paperbacks. I'll buy a couple here and there uh, just to keep on hand. And I mean, if a person gives it back, great. But those are the kind of books that I'm like, I don't mind if I don't get it back. Maybe they'll lend it to someone else because they're so good. It's like spreading the good news, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned that you write music. You want to tell us a little bit about what you do with music? Yeah, well, music was my first um, sort of first thing I really got into it was more autonomous like I as a youngster I should say I, I was really into all the I liked everything I liked art and music I was kind of one of those guys and, and um, but art you have art class at school and then I, I played saxophone for a while and I was awful and the other kids had <laughs> lessons and I didn't I had the worst possible really heavy clunky saxophone I was just terrible um, and the only goal in, in middle school you know to move up a chair in your section was to not sit next to the french horns because the last chair saxophone player sat right next to the french horns and so you've got this this girl with this french running and right at your hip and so the whole <laughs> class you're just your hip is vibrating it's awful and so in high school i got into the guitar and i just that was all on me i didn't have again i didn't have access to lessons so it was a kind of a self-taught thing and and I, I wasn't really social. I was pretty introverted most of my life until maybe four or five years ago. Um, and so I was just perfectly content to sit in my room for hours and hours and just play guitar. And through high school and college, I eventually, and this this might actually shed some light, I suppose, on the subject matter that I, I tend to gravitate around, or at least the metaphors that I'm not necessarily the subject matter specifically. Uh, so I went into graphic design school, hated it, and just like my childhood, did the art thing and then decided to do the music thing, so I switched to a music college, I actually went to a Bible college, and uh, I majored in music, uh, sort of like music theory and performance, and finished that, and got out, and then for about five years there, I, uh, I well, for a, few, a while before I was out, I was, I was sort of interning slash assistant music pastor guy, basically the go-to guy, and then I was a music pastor for about five years, and uh, that brings me up to about almost three years ago now, moving to California, didn't find that job, and um, so I just got a normal job, you know, an everyday workday job, and uh, the music thing sort of took a backseat, and I'd started writing a few years before this, but not taking it seriously, and I had more time to write now, too, and then... All of that eventually culminated in sort of a deconversion experience from the whole religious side too. So then the music thing is now so strongly associated with um, sort of the religion thing that I still love to play music. And I was always a, a rocker. I was always into metal and classic rock and blues and jazz and everything else. 
but it, you know, I can't, the, the weekly gig that I always had, I, I don't have that anymore. I don't have access to that. I can't just now you know, go to a church and volunteer and they're going to be like, well, what do you believe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Stuff. So, not a lot. Um, so I can't really just, I can't do that every week. And so I think writing is kind of taking the place of that artistic endeavor in addiction. I, I tried my hand at electronic music a few years ago. It sucked. I mean, it was it was bad. It was all computer stuff, and that's that's my thing. So I'm mainly a guitar player. I have a couple still, and I love it. I still play guitar uh, once in a while, but you know, it's 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 um I think it's much harder, and I have a lot more respect for people that can cut it as a musician. And I never had that uh, freedom like I do writing, I never had the freedom of creating, I was more emulating either the classic songs that I liked or the music for church that I liked, that I wanted to, or that I wanted to do on Sunday morning or Wednesday evening or something. And it just, it was constant emulation, constant emulation. And so I was so trained to do that, that whenever I did decide to write a song, I just, I couldn't. And actually, songwriting, that's exactly what got me into writing, was being a failed songwriter and saying, well, maybe I could write poetry. It didn't pan out, but <laughs> short stories started to pan out. So that was a few years ago, and that slowly took, took um, root in my life. And then moving out here, not getting that instant sort of gratification, not just jumping into another church job, allowed me a lot more time to think about things, to read a lot more books, and then to write more and just that's how I dealt with everything through that transition was just writing things out rather than playing music. You mentioned a little bit about some of the jobs you did. You have quite the varied list um, as part of your bio, <laughs> um, which we read at the top of the show. Um, what of those jobs, which one was the most interesting? Like which one yielded the oh. best stories for you to tell? It's so tough because there's you run into so many crazy characters. The most stressful, I wouldn't say interesting, there's some good stories. The most stressful is Repossession, and I, I haven't written much about any of those characters or any of those people I've come across, because that's just still too fresh. Right now I'm a, a gemologist, and I love that. It's very interesting. But it's monotonous, so I don't... I, interesting intellectually, I love it. I've never liked the job so much. You know, I just look at diamonds all day. It's fantastic. And in a microscope, you know, you do the whole thing. You grade them, you decide all the clarity calls and such. And I love it. It's intellectually engaging. It's it's always different. Um, and I don't have to constantly deal with people. And it's not customer service. You don't have to pretend to like someone. You don't have to be nice. It's very quiet. You wear headphones. You listen to whatever you want to listen to. You keep to yourself. And you just do your sounds. Um, that's probably my most interesting job. Uh, the only other one that I would say would be a close second, that, but that has yielded a lot more fiction for me, or fact-based fiction, if you will, is the coffee shop job. I mean, a coffee shop job is a perfect job to observe people without um, having to deal with people all the time. So yeah, you're at the counter for part of the day and you're, you're dealing, but you roast, I was roasting coffee at the time, so you're behind this big machine. Anyone that wants to talk to you, instantly respects you because you're the guy roasting the coffee. So you must know something and you seem very important. <laughs> and so if they're going to approach you, it's very loud. So they have to have some confidence. They have to talk loud. And so instantly 
you just it's just kind of a strange dynamic where you don't get that behind the counter as a barista making a, a latte or something. People can just treat you like total crap. But when you're roasting, it's just it's great. And then when there's no one talking, you can just observe everything, and you're almost invisible because people get used to just yo he's over there he's roasting he's doing his thing, and you just you can observe everything. And that was probably probably that's that's my gold mine of people that I can remember and weird things happening. Um, I've, I've said a few short stories in a part of my part of a novel that is still seeking a home, um, really heavily revolved around this idea of a coffee shop, and, but almost as a metaphor too. So hope that wasn't too unbelievably long. Ended. I know you said <laughs> pick one, just it never works out to pick one. <laughs> we, so it's a lesson I'm learning here on, on book. Right. Which, which is I a good segue, yeah. which is a good segue into our next question too. Okay, this is a question that we uh, we ask uh, pretty regularly when we interview authors, and it's just I think half of it is because we want a, a different perspective than our own, but half of it is just like kind of laziness um, because it takes a lot of work to find books and everything like that. So, uh, if you could give us just one, which author do you think you'd like to see uh, us either review or have on to talk to? This is see, this is where my I show my true colors because I don't I'm I'm not nearly as well read as a lot of the guys that I'm uh, milling around with over at the Velvet. One of the most influential books I've ever read, I suppose, um, that really affected me uh, was House of Leaves. And I love talking to that guy. I've, I've seen him once do a reading in um, Daniel Danieleski. Danieleski, is that how you say? Yep, Mark, that is. And he just he does something so different with every story. It's never it's you just it's never predictable. Um, and it's it's just it's the kind of literature that you expect there to be a class on in another twenty years. <laughs> like every one of his books is just not only different from it, he doesn't have a voice. You, you can't just read something, oh, that's totally Danielski. No, you'd have to say, ooh, that's House of Leaves, and ooh, that's Only Revolutions, and ooh, that's, you know, what's the other one? Um, Is it the Whalestone Letters? Whalestone Letters, sure. Um, and there's a 50-foot sword, a 50-year sword, 50-year sword. And, uh, no, he's just, he's just so brilliant and so just so far beyond anything that anyone's doing, and it's an absolute shame. It's just as bad as Clevenger and Jones and Bear um, not having enough press, because none of them do. None of them get nearly enough credit for what they're doing, um, for their genres. And Danieleski's almost like creating genres or, or turning genres. I mean, House of Leaves is a meta-novel. It's not a novel. It's just, it's something else. The book itself is the labyrinth. It is a puzzle. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can get lost, and there's there's feelings of claustrophobia as you read it, and agoraphobia, all those things because of how it's put together. That guy, I just I love an opportunity to hear someone just really pick his brain and really just get him going. And I don't know, I don't know if he does a lot of interviews or anything. He's always real quiet, and you never hear from him for six years, and then something else comes out, and <laughs> that guy just intrigues me to no end. He is um, in the works, and I'm sure you've heard this. I think we mentioned it a couple of episodes ago, too. But um, he's in the works on, it's a 21-volume story about a girl and a cat is, is the next one. <laughs> You're and, kidding. I thought that was a joke. I thought someone was <laughs> pulling my leg. I was like, shut up. Yeah. 
Yeah. He had actually, he had actually, and I, I could be mistaken here. I think it was, he posted on Twitter that he actually delivered it to the publisher on two iPads and yeah. that's all the information that was given. So it could be a fully digital story. I mean, everybody's kind of speculating at this point. I don't know if there's been any new information. That stuff's a couple months old and that's the last I heard of it. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what he would do. Why wouldn't mm-hmm. he, you know, that would totally legitimize the format. And it would totally get me to buy an iPad, too. Oh, yeah. I'd run out tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Anthony, what are you currently working on? What am I working on? Um, I kind of have a few few, um, pokers in the fire, as they say. uh, I'm going through all those short stories from last year. I'm looking at, you know, is is there anything worth salvaging from the ones I don't like? Uh, maybe a good sentence here, a couple of lines there, or maybe a good just nugget of an idea that maybe I vomited out Saturday night because I knew I had to post it that next morning. And then, but that's kind of, that's really the back burner. Um, the other idea is grabbing the ones that I do like, trying to arrange them. There's a few of them that were kind of a series, a couple of series that happened, and I'm gonna put them together, make the verb tenses agree, make the voice consistent and maybe work them into sort of a longer short story here and a longer short story there and work that out. Um, I'm doing my last, hopefully, revision on this novel that I started maybe four years ago and it's, it was awful the first time through, but I've done it, I've gone through it six times now and it's, it's actually, I, I like reading it, which is a good thing to, to not get terribly sick of something and then that that shouldn't take long my wife is editing for me and she's uh she's gone through it and didn't find a whole lot this time around which is just a relief Hmm. um and the the thing that i'm sort of creating at the moment that i'm actually forging ahead isn't fiction um i'm actually having i'm sorting through a lot of the things that i was thinking through and dealing with in fiction the last few years and i'm actually writing a series of essays on sort of like ethics and morality and religion and, and kind of a postmodern commentary on all these uh, sort of a, a, the world after September 11th and you, you see a lot of the, the, uh, the traction that a lot of these new atheists are getting these guys who are writing a lot of real uh, gritty not gritty but vitriolic sometimes and really just some real almost diatribes are not quite just the the books about religion and the books critiquing religion and I'm, I'm trying to find a more moderate way of, of being reasonable um, but still having a, a worthwhile critique of you know what I see going on and um, I've done that in blog form a couple of times and I've, I've done sort of a back and forth with a, a liberal Christian friend of mine who's who's kind of gone through some of the same changes that I have, but he hasn't, he's gotten rid of most of his fundamentalist sort of upbringing and so have I, but he hasn't quite gone as far as I have, and so we've gone back and forth, and to most people that he and I would know, we're both heretics. But um, that's sort of where my, my mind is at, my, my thinking, my, my ideas are more going in the direction of, of well, what do I really believe, and 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 I can look back on my stories, then that actually informs a lot of it. Like this story here, The Liberation of Edward Keller, and a few of the other ones, uh, the, the metaphors that are at play kind of tell me a lot about what I'm, what I was thinking when I wrote it, and how that's different 
from what I would have said in a similar idea five years ago. And it's almost cathartic. It's not even necessarily like something that I, I'd love to publish, but it might be too personal. You know, I can hide behind a metaphor. I can take the short stories and I can just, I can, I can know what it means and I never have to say. But when you write an essay, you're pretty exposed. And so I'm writing them. It's for my own benefit. And if they come out feeling right, sure, I might, I might put it into some kind of a collection and shop it around. But if it comes out feeling a little too personal, a little too, I don't know, exposed, then who knows? I don't know. It, it's, it's a little, it's, it's new ground for me. Exactly how that's going to develop. But that's, that's basically what I'm doing at the moment. It's a lot of stuff, and I, I don't know if I should be spread so thin, but I don't really know any better. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you'd like to plug or talk about that maybe we haven't mentioned yet before we start uh, wrapping this up? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't have anything to plug. I, I have a website, anthonydavidjakes.com. You can go there and peruse the goods, I suppose. It's kind of become more of a blog this year since I'm not doing the one short story a week thing. That, I mean, that was good for a year, but I wouldn't recommend it um, beyond that. And I have a, a photo Tumblr sort of thing. I take a lot of pictures of like uh, classic cars or whatever. And and uh, that's just anthonydavidjakes.tumblr.com. Um, other than that, I, I wish I had something to sell. But I, I really don't. I right now I'm kind of keeping it in the family, uh, as it were, in the in the in the sort of the insular writing family that I know. And every once in a while, trade the stories with someone, and they'll tell me, "Oh, you've got to submit this somewhere." And then I will. But um, other than that, I'm not sure I know what I want my long voice to be. So this this first novel again, I don't know if I'm even going to send it out. I probably will, but I'm still kind of finding my footing and so I'm, I'm pretty reserved with setting things out and, I, and because of that obviously I don't have a whole lot to, to point to um, but there hopefully will be good things in the next year or so with with all the, the things that got hashed out last year with the short stories and whatnot hopefully I can make something of that that would be it'd be good to, to have more than just a short story uh, published it'd be nice to have a, something uh, not a collection, I don't think. I think I don't think anyone knows who I am, but you know, in the future. So, all that is to say, go to my website. <laughs> uh, well, definitely for the time being, I recommend people check out Warmed and Bound in general, but definitely the liberation of Edward Keller because it's a tightly packed story that's really, really good. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks again for taking the time to come on and book to talk to us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Okay, and a big thanks once more to Anthony David Jakes for coming on. It was really great to talk to him and get to know him a bit. Uh, you can go to his website, anthonydavidjakes.com, for links to his writing. And you can read Anthony David Jakes' short story, The Liberation of Edward Keller in Warmed and Bound Velvet Anthology, which is now available from your favorite major online book retailer. That wraps it up for another episode of Booked, the Warmed and Bound Sessions. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Come back again tomorrow for another Warmed and Bound Session. Bye.